Hey, I hope you're doing well today. I wanted to just jump in and say hi. My name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor at Mountain Park, and you're listening to the Mountain Park Church podcast. We've been on an intentional hiatus for uh, the last little while, but we're back. And we have some really exciting things that we want to be connecting with you on. I wanted to jump in today just to preface what you are about to hear and what you're going to hear from us in the coming weeks. We just launched publicly out loud for the first time our series right now, which is called Vision 2030. And typically, if you've been around for a while here, we have not done the typical church vision series for many, many years. We haven't actually felt released to do that. And certainly we've never attached sort of a date to anything, but there is something significant that God is doing right now in the life of our church. Right now, we are on the threshold of a once in a generation shift not necessarily into a radically new thing. We are moving into a new season for sure. It's a huge shift and we are on the threshold of beginning to live out God's identity and purpose and calling for us as a church in some significantly new ways. As I say that, I wanna be sure to honor and give honor to what God has done in this church through past leadership, through past pastors. This church was found uh, in 1975. It was established at Martha Cullimore School in Niagara Falls here in Canada where we are. And uh, God has worked powerfully over the years in different seasons, through different generations, through men and women responding to his call on their lives. And uh, anything that we talk about as it relates to Vision 2030, anything that God is moving us into is a standing on the shoulders of what has come in the past. and. The history of our church is a history of an identity and a DNA of renewal, mission, and formation. And so we may be moving into a new season, a radically different season of the expression of that, but this is still the same heart that we're carrying. And so I just wanted you to know that before we step into this message that we're not trying to also build hype or use hyperbolic language. We're not trying to just, um, you know, rile people up and generate buzz and whatever. This vision uh, is actually like the expression of this out loud is the fruit of now a few years of God forming something in us. And that formation has come with great pain and with great um, longing. And we've been wrestling with God and we, we have been deeply, deeply um, wanting Him and allowing Him to refine in our lives. And 
to crucify and kill uh, the false and all kinds of stuff. We, we've been undergoing a deep death to self in many ways. And this is the fruit now out loud, the fruit of that work that Jesus has been doing. And so this isn't, we're not just trying to hype you up here. We're um, intentionally now bringing out into the open, into the public, the stuff that God has been stirring in us. And I just wanna say, if you are local here in the Niagara region and you are connected with our church in some way, if you call our church home, I want to strongly, I like, I wanna call you into a deeper life with us, a deeper integration with us than you ever have had. I wanna call you into our community and into our family in deeper ways. I wanna call you to uh, renew commitment to be a part of our church on a weekly basis. I wanna call you to, to stop casually attending. I wanna call you into something more significant. And if you are listening and you're from outside of our region, you're a friend of ours that's from far away, I, I you know, I'm not going to ask you to drive here, fly here to come to church. But what I want to call you into is a renewed yes in your life in this season to all that God and the Spirit want to do. The kind of 2030 thing is uh, we're, again, I'm not huge on numbers and I, I don't, you know, you know I, I don't necessarily believe that every number has this like profound spiritual significance, but it's been almost seven years. February, 2024 will be the seven year mark of my current role here. I, the word or the sense I've been getting from the spirit, the question actually that I've been getting from him is Andrew, are you willing to give me your unequivocal, undivided yes for the next seven years? If if I want to keep you rooted in here, and would you be willing to give me your yes for the next seven years? And I, I don't know what the future is gonna hold. I have no idea. God, I hardly know what's gonna happen tomorrow, let alone seven years from now. But if you are listening to this locally or you're far from us geographically, I, the call is the same. And it's the Spirit of God saying, would you give me your yes to whatever it is that I wanna work and stir up and do in you, wherever you are, whatever your life circumstances right now, God has a vision and a purpose and his question is would you give me your yes? So this is the beginning of this series for us, the formulation of what we believe the heart of God for the life of our churches. We're starting up at 30,000 feet and that's where we're going. Now I'm gonna end this uh, at the end of my message. I'm gonna jump back in here and help distill things because I never say them as clearly or as efficiently when I'm preaching live as I would like to. So I'm gonna end by doing that, but I just uh, so thankful for you. Pray God's blessing on you. Here is part one in this Vision 2030 series. The teaching text for today 
I'm going to get you to stand again just as I read it. Um, this morning, this teaching text is short but um, potent. This is a, a combination of two gospel renditions of the same conversation Jesus had with his disciples about prayer in the kingdom. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. In 1940, there was an unofficial lull in the Blitzkrieg attacks on London for Christmas. But by December 29th, the German bomber planes had returned with renewed vigor. It had been a Christmas underground for many people who slept in underground stations or festively decorated air raid shelters. For two nights, the bomber planes had not come and the anti-aircraft guns remained silent. The silence was broken as dusk fell on the 29th of December. The enemy aircraft had returned. For almost 12 hours, the German Luftwaffe attacked the city with incendiary bombs and high explosives, causing a firestorm that became known as the Second Great Fire of London. By 6.30 p.m. on that cold Sunday evening, the square mile, as it was called, in the heart of London was in flames. This photo was taken during that night air raid on December 29th and 30th, 1940, which was the 114th night of the Blitz in World War II. This photo shows St. Paul's Cathedral, illuminated by fires and surrounded by the smoke of burning buildings. London itself was bombed by the Luftwaffe for 57 consecutive nights as part of that larger campaign. More than one million London houses were destroyed or damaged, and more than 20,000 civilians were killed in London proper alone. On the event that is behind this image here, German bombs destroyed hundreds of buildings that night, and thick black smoke filled the air. St. Paul's was not exempt from the raid and in total, 28 incendiary bombs fell on the cathedral and its precincts. With the iconic building in serious danger of being destroyed, Prime Minister Winston Churchill issued a message stating, St. Paul's must be saved at all costs. In addition to the work of the firefighters who tackled fires at street level, the preservation of St. Paul's was ensured by a group of cathedral volunteers known as the St. Paul's Watch. 
During the Blitz, St. Paul's became a national symbol of survival and restoration. On this night, those men and women who made up St. Paul's watched braved death, were courageous in the face of death. They, even their stories of them pulling bombs out of the rafters of the building undetonated German bombs out of the rafters at great peril and risk to themselves in order to preserve and to save St. Paul's. The day after this happened, this picture was in all of the newspapers and an office worker who lived close to St. Paul's named Dorothy Barton, seeing the picture in the morning after the great raid of December 29th, 1940, said this, I felt a lump in my throat because like so many people, I felt that while St. Paul survived, so would we. In his book, Water from a Deep Well, Gerald Sitzer paints a stunning picture that I wanna read for you of the purpose and design of Gothic cathedrals like St. Paul's. Let me read this to you. By the mid 14th century, several thousand Gothic cathedrals and churches dotted the European landscape, especially in England and France. One scholar estimates that between the years of 1050 and 1350, more stone was quarried for Gothic buildings in Europe than during any major building period in the entire history of Egypt. And that says nothing about the huge timbers that were cut for beams and scaffolding, the glass that was formed, colored, cut and shaped into beautiful windows, the lead that was mined, melted and used for glasswork, water spouts and roof and other materials that were needed along the way, entire guilds of workers, stonemasons, wood carvers, cloth makers, stained glass artists were founded and fostered to build these architectural behemoths. What made Gothic architecture truly new was the vision of reality that it portrayed. Gothic churches were intended to represent in earthly form an image of heaven, building to depict in material form the spiritual reality of heaven. I want to read that again. What made Gothic architecture truly new was the vision of reality that it portrayed. Gothic churches were intended to represent in earthly form an image of heaven, to depict in material form the spiritual reality of heaven, as if it were a kind of earthly incarnation of the celestial city, a window that opened up into another world. Famous archaeologist Suger attempted to combine architecture and theology into a seamless whole. In a sense, he was, according to Otto van Simpson, who was a renowned historian of Gothic architecture, an architect who built theology. Whereas Romanesque churches created the setting in which certain divine realities could be displayed, say, by hanging tapestries and paintings that told the biblical story, the Gothic builder applied the very laws that order heaven and earth. The Gothic cathedral was therefore more than a symbol. It was a literal representation 
of the kingdom of God on earth. I want to read that last sentence again. The Gothic cathedral was therefore more than a symbol. It was the literal representation of the kingdom of God on earth, built into the very architecture. The Gothic cathedrals gave people something concrete to experience that was meant to be a tangible expression, something tangible they could lay their eyes on, put their hands on, and enter into that was a tangible expression of the reality of another kingdom, the reality of heaven on earth. In the case of St. Paul's, during the Blitz, it was a powerful instrument of hope in the midst of darkness. Today, we're going to begin a conversation on what we are calling our 2030 vision. If you want to do the math, that's a seven-year sort of view. And what God is beginning to unveil for us is not something new. It's actually something he's been stirring for six and a half years deep inside of us. And that's today we're going to begin to give you a picture of what it looks like to step across the Jordan and onto the land of promise that God has for us. The most basic way that we can describe this vision, it's out on our walls now in, in our entryway specifically is this promised land, the other side of the Jordan for us looks like this. It looks like the invasion of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven through you. So here's what I see as we begin to talk about the vision of God for the life of our church. Just like the landscape of London during the war, the landscape of Palestine in the Middle East right now, what I see is a brooding landscape that is ravaged, the Niger region ravaged by sin, struggling in the smoldering ashes of people who are walking without hope, with nowhere to turn and no solution. We can see sort of prophetically that there's darkness all around, and we know there is. But that darkness, that reality of life, the dark reality of the truth that we're engaged in a spiritual battle, and it's ravaging our region, it's having disastrous effects on families and men and women and children and our community as a whole, that reality is not cause for hopelessness. What I can see as I sit and ponder these things is darkness, yes, but all around Niagara, I can see these living cathedrals standing tall in the midst of the rubble and the ruin and the darkness the collateral damage of the spiritual battle we are in. I can see these living cathedrals made of stone that are able to weather the fire and the fury of the enemy. 
What makes these cathedrals different though than St. Paul's or any of the other great cathedrals in the Gothic time period is that those cathedrals were designed with stained glass to, to take the, the light of the sun, pour it into the cathedral and bathe those inside in the splendor of God's creation, in the beauty of God's creation. It was meant to take what was outside and illuminate what was inside in a beautiful, immersive way, a, a canopy of God-colored light from the sun. But as living cathedrals, we're meant to operate in the inverse. We're meant to actually carry the light and the presence of God's kingdom in us in such a way that it explodes out, it radiates out of us to the world around, bringing God's canopy of color and goodness and beauty and life into the midst of dark places. We're not cathedrals that exist for our own pleasure and our own goodness. We're men and women who are living Testaments, living examples of the kingdom of God and its presence and power in dark places. In Gothic cathedrals, the source of light was external and it benefited those inside. But in us, living cathedrals, the source of the spirit of God bringing his kingdom through us is internal and it radiates out. So I can see in this landscape of darkness and confusion and struggle and enmity and anger and hostility and strife and brokenness and trauma and pain and all of the realities of world. I can see these living cathedrals dotted all over Niagara, bringing with them the light of the kingdom of God, exploding and radiating out of them the beauty and the goodness and the power and the majesty of the kingdom of God in dark places on our streets and in our neighborhoods, in our community centers and hockey rinks, in our places of work and in our schools, and dare we even say in our administrative offices for our school boards. Are those outside of the realm of God's power and presence? No way. God is calling us to reshape and recalibrate our lives as the very medium in the same way the Gothic cathedral was the living embodiment of another kingdom, our lives are to become the medium of God's presence on the earth. Not God, would you do it somehow, some way, but God, would you do it through me? Would you bring your kingdom to bear in me in such a way that where I walk, your kingdom travels with me. In the dark places that I find myself, your kingdom is present with me. And all of the goodness and all of the beauty and all of the power and all of the presence of God's kingdom is in me bursting out in the reality that I live and walk in. We see this invasion, and I use that word very specifically. I think we need a strong 
call. This is not just kind of could have, would have, should have, maybe kind of, I'll get to it when I can. We need an invasion of the kingdom of God in us so that he can propel his kingdom through us. You need an invasion of the kingdom of God into the dark places of your life, to the unyielded, unsurrendered places, and so do I. We don't need to play around and do finger painting here. We literally need an invasion of God's presence and his kingdom in us. Why? For the renewal of Niagara. Renewal will never happen on the earth unless God's people step up to become the conduit of it. Guess what? We learn from scripture. God doesn't act on the earth without going through people. God never bypasses us. And you go right back to Genesis 1 to find out why. God always is operating through people that are yielded to his presence, that are walking in intimacy with him, that are people that are learning to follow him, to trust him with their lives. We want to see the fires of spiritual awakening in Niagara and the tangible presence and beauty of God. The good news of Jesus was this. It was the availability of the kingdom of God and all that brought now. The good news of Jesus was not pray this and then one day you'll go to heaven. The good news is God's kingdom is available today. You know, as Jesus walked and ministered, I'm not aware of one circumstance where Jesus was healing, where he was delivering people from the demonic, where he was operating in the kingdom presence and power of God. I'm not aware of one circumstance where he said, first, oh, before we get there, bow down and give me allegiance. Mm -mm. Jesus brought the kingdom and then allowed people to decide what they would do. Are you going to follow me or not? It's your choice. He allowed the rich young ruler to walk away. But he brings the kingdom and the good news is that the kingdom is available for your real life today. So we want to see this kingdom invasion into very real places. We want to see this invasion into places of addiction invasion into places of trauma and pain. We want to see this invasion into places of habitual sin, invasion into injustice, poverty, invasion into broken and failing marriages, invasion into families, invasion into places of suffering, sickness and disease, invasion into areas of spiritual bondage and brokenness, invasion into cultures of depression and suicide and dysphoria. We also want to see the invasion of his kingdom into business and entrepreneurship, invasion into culture, invasion into the real stuff that we're living every day. That's the heart of the king for his kingdom. God's call on us is to stop playing church on Sunday and start living his kingdom on Monday and to bring his goodness and his beauty and his life to the real places that people are finding themselves in. This, just by the way, is why 
we started lingering times at the end of the service and why we've started presence nights and why we're going to launch prayer rooms in the very near future because God is calling us first to bring his kingdom into the life of the church again and to make his presence and his kingdom the priority, the, the, the obsession of the church. And I'm using that word very deliberately as well. Your life, my life, it's filled with obsessions that lead us away from the presence of God. And he's calling first the church back to be a people who are obsessed with the presence of God so that the kingdom of God can come in the church and explode out of it into very real places. So this vision of 2030 vision is not a vision to build a church, a ministry, an organization. It's not a vision for numeric count or offering size or anything like that. It's a vision for the renewal of Niagara as heaven invades the earth through men and women burning with renewal. This vision quite literally is on earth as it is in heaven through you. This vision is big. It's incomprehensibly impossible with human strength. So God is calling us to begin living the prayer of Jesus in Matthew 6. He's calling us to begin living the prayer the way Jesus himself lived it becoming living cathedrals of his kingdom, his presence, and his power. In order to understand what Jesus is praying, though, we need to just kind of pause and talk about a few key words of this prayer. Kingdom, heaven, and will. How are, you, are you doing okay? Yeah, thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. Props to you. Your name is going to make it on the podcast even. Amazing. <laughs> so to begin to live it the way Jesus did, we have to understand what Jesus was talking about. So let's begin with the word kingdom and specifically my kingdom. Each one of us has our own kingdom or a queendom or a government, a realm that is uniquely our own where our choice determines what happens. Our kingdom is simply the range of our effective will. Whatever we genuinely have say over is in our kingdom. That's from Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy. A great example of that I can think of from my own life is the kingdom that I have in my vehicle and the kingdom Rochelle has in her vehicle. Now there's a bit of a clash of kingdoms when it comes to riding in each other's vehicles. Namely, I don't love stuffing stuff in the side door pockets of my kingdom and I don't like leaving banana peels and apples to rot in the back seat of my kingdom. That's just me and my kingdom, but we get into some trouble because her kingdom invades my kingdom and messes my kingdom up. Conversely, when I get into her car, she has a kingdom that she is cultivating in there, and I'm not going to get into exactly the details of that because I love her, and, uh, 
and um, respect her so deeply. But there is a kingdom reality taking place. And your kingdom and my kingdom is the effective range of our own will. It's the place in which what we determine to happen happens. And your kingdom can be found maybe in your vehicle, in your home, in your workplace. For almost all of humanity, our first area of kingdom is found in our body. Our kingdom is the decision for us to do with our body what we want to do. Our kingdom is found in the choices that we make. What we do with our body, with ourselves. Our kingdom is that place of our effective will where what we want to have say over, we do. And the issue with humanity and our lives is that our kingdom often clashes with the kingdom of those we love. It for sure clashes with the kingdoms of those we don't love. And outside of leadership under God, our kingdoms are constantly at war. That's what it means to have my own kingdom. According to Genesis 1, we're given a job description and a responsibility to rule over all the living things of the earth, animal and plant. We, according to God's original job description for humanity, we are responsible for life on earth. The original heartbeat of God was, would you co-rule with me on the earth? Would you labor and partner with me So that our kingdoms become the same thing. That the heart and desire of the Father becomes the heart and desire that you live with and walk through life with. We were meant to rule with God as he acts with us. That rule was not meant to be a dictatorial kind of hierarchical thing. It was meant to be God flowing through us as we are walking in relationship with him. Co-working. You and I are co-creators with God of his kingdom reality on the earth. That's what our original job description was. Unfortunately, our mistrust of God and his character led us into the temptation of a self-ruled life where we decided that we needed to put boundaries on the rule and reign of our kingdom. We needed to kind of shore up the walls and make sure that we protected our kingdom, our self-interest. And we made a choice to violate God's kingdom as a result of that. We chose life in our kingdom, life by our kingdom rules, life by our kingdom values. That's what we chose. And It separated us from God. It's interesting that the author of Genesis notes that one of the results of that was that we were forced to work by the sweat of our brow. And I think in part what he's meaning to communicate is that you are now reduced to live by your own energy and strength, not the strength that comes from the kingdom of God. You now are going to be forced to scrap it out and rely on your human capacity and strength instead of co-partnering with unlimited resources of presence and power. 
So often in the church, this is exactly how we live. We have this hypocrisy, for lack of a better word, where we say we follow Jesus, but our Christian life is almost entirely lived out of our own strength and capacity. Our Christian life is almost entirely lived out of what we determine we want to do, what we're willing to do for God. So we were separated from God, but Jesus brought with him the good news, the gospel, that the kingdom of God was available through the reconciliation of God to humanity through Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus brought was access to the life of God and the resources of heaven again. So that's our kingdom, but what is God's kingdom? This is a little trickier. God's own kingdom in the same way is the effective range of his will. When scripture talks about God's kingdom, it's not talking about a location primarily, it's talking about a reality. And his kingdom is the place where what God wants done is done. That's where his kingdom is present. Again, Dallas Willard says this, his kingdom is not something confined to someone's heart or their inner world of human consciousness. It's not some matter of inner attitude or faith that might be totally disconnected from the public. That's not his kingdom. His kingdom isn't that thing that you say you believe inside but never express, never live out. That's not his kingdom. His kingdom is not disconnected from the public, behavioral, visible world. It always pervades and governs the whole of the physical universe. So when Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, he does not mean that we should pray for it to come into existence. It's already here. He means that we should pray for it to take over at all points of our life. God, may it come into effect in my life. It's already here. It's all around me. But God, would your kingdom come into effect in every point of my personal, social, and cultural life where it is now excluded? In essence, what Jesus is saying is don't, you know, just bring it. But God, may it come into effect over the real part of my daily life. And this is what Jesus meant when he told us to seek First, the kingdom of God, to look for it everywhere in every space of life. So if the kingdom of God is the effective range of his will and his rule, then what does his kingdom actually look like? I have a few scriptures to read for you. Matthew 4, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria. And people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sicknesses or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea and from east of the Jordan River. Luke 7, the disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called for two of his disciples and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, are you the Messiah? 
we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? John's two disciples found Jesus and said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, go back and tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And he added, God blesses those who don't turn away because of me. Jesus in Luke 11 said, if I am casting out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. The kingdom of God looks like the activity of Jesus. The kingdom of God is the expression of the reality of heaven as it comes into touch with the brokenness of our world. The kingdom of God is the expression, the reality of the healing ministry of Jesus. That's the kingdom of God in evidence, in physical form. That's the material reality of the kingdom of God as Jesus delivers people from demonic bondage. That is the material reality of the presence of the kingdom of God. When Jesus brought hope and restoration and he brought... Um, you know, food to the poor and the presence of the kingdom to the broken and the traumatized and the people that were bound in pain and suffering. The reality of the kingdom of God was present. If you want to know what the kingdom looks like, then you just follow Jesus around all of the gospels. And you begin to see this is exactly what the reality of heaven looks like on earth. It's not some abstract thing in your heart. It's the expression of the very heart of God through your life. The kingdom looks like the Sermon on the Mount to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The kingdom looks like the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. The kingdom looks like the whole Sermon on the Mount. That's what it looks like in reality to live it. And this is the kingdom that God is calling us to bring from heaven into Niagara. That's what it will look like. For the kingdom of God to be present, people are going to be set free. They're going to be healed. The poor will be taken care of. We'll see the kingdom break out, healing trauma and pain and brokenness. The kingdom breaking out into families and marriages and businesses. The kingdom coming in tangible, real ways. That's what it will look like when the kingdom comes in Niagara. It's not going to look like a Sunday morning service. It's not going to look like however many people are here. It's not going to look like any of those things. It's going to look like you as a living cathedral of the presence and power of God standing in the midst of the brokenness of the world and bringing the reality of heaven to bear on your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, in the places that your kids play sports and everything else. That's what the kingdom looks like. Second word that we need to talk about is heaven. What does Jesus mean by heaven? And this is a harder one for us to grapple with. But the first heaven in scripture, um, 
There's at least three because Paul talks about being in the third heaven. But the first heaven in biblical terms is the air or atmosphere all around your body. In English, this is often and unfortunately translated as either sky, air, or heaven interchangeably. The passage there in Acts 11 is the the trance that Peter enters into on the roof as he's waiting for lunch. And he enters into this trance and he's got this encounter. And in this trance that that in the NRSV, that word sky and air and heaven are all used, but they have the same Greek word underneath all of them. So when Jesus is talking about heaven, he's not primarily talking about a physical location that's somewhere very far away. He's talking about the reality of the kingdom of God all around you. It's literally infused in the oxygen that you breathe, in the air that is all around us right now. If we have a biblical perspective of what heaven is, one of those perspectives, one of those realities is that it's all around us even right now. So the worldview that Jesus grew up with was not heaven is out there somewhere. He grew up with this thought that the space all around us is full of the presence of God. Heaven is not, you know, some however many millions of miles away in a black universe with nothingness between me and God, that God's presence, heaven is literally invading the space that my lungs are breathing in and out right now. It's almost impossible to be people of prayer if our perception of heaven is that it's out there somewhere in the galaxy and that there's this little kind of mini Jesus running around somewhere way out there that we can't see or relate to. But if heaven is literally right here with me, then as I pray, I'm not speaking or trying to talk to some God that's way out there. I'm literally interacting with the space that's all around me. This is how the apostle Paul describes it. His purpose, speaking of God and Jesus, was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. This is Paul just describing this in simple language, for in him we live and move and exist. You are breathing right now in the atmosphere of heaven. You're living, you're existing in a greater reality. When Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven coming to earth, he wasn't talking about retrieving something from a galaxy far, far away. He was talking about making real the reality that's already present all around you. In Genesis 22, 11, as Abraham is being challenged to offer Isaac, he's at that moment of decision or he will sacrifice his son. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Abraham is not experiencing this as some kind of like way, way off in the distance. God called to him from the space that was all around Abraham. Maybe a clearer image 
Genesis 28, meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled to Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and stopped there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head and lay down to sleep. As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from earth up to heaven, and he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. He's here. He's all around me. In fact, there's this ladder going up between earth and heaven, and it's existing right in the space that I'm occupying. He says, what an awesome place this is. It's none other than the house of God, the very gateway of heaven. The reality that Jesus is talking about as he says, God, would your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven is not pulling something down from afar. It's saying, would it be manifest in reality in my life because it's already here and present? God, would my life come into alignment with your purposes and your plans and your presence in such a way that I become a conduit for the really real reality that's all around me? And that's that God wants to invade the space that is broken and dark in our world. So for Paul and Abraham and Jacob and Moses, the heaven that God spoke from and manifested his strength and power from were never thought as far away but it's here because God is here and he's all around. He is the atmosphere that surrounds us. In the New Testament, we see the same with Jesus. At his transfiguration is a perfect example. There's a reality going on that needs to be uncovered, that needs to be revealed. Moses and Elijah show up. Do you think they took their guardians of the galaxy starship from wherever heaven might be and just kind of made their way, traveled through the light. No, they were present and they were just revealed to be in the space that they already were. The tongues of fire that rested on the 120 in the upper room were a revelation of what was actually already present and happening in heavenly places. So what is the kingdom of the heavens then? Matthew is the only New Testament writer that uses this term, the kingdom of the heavens. And he uses it to describe God's rule and the nearness of his rule to our ordinary lives. Heaven is the dimension of God's rule. It is both a real place, like the one Paul visited, the third heaven, or the one John is taken up to in the throne room scene of Revelation. And it is also a spiritual reality that interacts with creation. For us to understand this, I'm almost done with this. For us to understand this, we need to grasp this concept that space is not empty. So if you are a fan of the Marvel universe of movies, the Avengers, you know what happens. Like these brave men and women, weird robots and other creatures, they travel from Earth to distant galaxies. What do they do? They travel through nothingness, through blackness, a void of life. And at some distant kind of interplanetary star system far away, they find Thanos there. And Thanos is this demigod who's living on this kind of burnt out, crusted out little planet. And that's our, that's our perception of God, honestly. 
Or you could fill in guardians of the galaxy. That the universe is this vast array of empty space. And somewhere God is present. But we don't know where he is. That is not the biblical view of space that scripture presents. That's actually not the view of space that science reveals. Space is not empty. Right now, you're breathing in oxygen. It's a chemical compound. It's not nothing. You're breathing out carbon dioxide. Even though you can't see it or smell it or taste it, there's substance in the air around us. Space isn't empty. There's not just emptiness between you and Jesus somewhere, between you and heaven or God. There is reality happening. Space is not empty. The Bible portrays space as something that's infused with the very presence of God himself. So here's an example of maybe a way to think of it. Our own human self spirit. You and I are spiritual beings that occupy a physical body. You know, back in um, a long time ago, scientists in Russia would do biological diagnoses of dead communist leaders who they revered to try and find in their brains the location or the, the structure of their strength and of their capacity as a leader. They literally did experiments on human bodies to try and locate physically and tangibly the capacity and brilliance and strength of these human leaders. And what they discovered that we know now is you can't because yourself can't be put in a Petri dish and examined under a microscope. Your intellect can't be found. Your desire, your emotion, the stuff that drives the substance of your life can't be found by dissecting your body post-mortem. You are a spiritual being, an intelligent spiritual being who occupies the space of a physical body. Our body is the means by which we bring ourself into the physical world. But your body can't be dissected to find your personality. What makes you tick? What gives you gifts and skills and vision and capacity and strength in certain areas? Again, Dallas Willard says this, roughly speaking, God relates to space as we do our own body. He occupies and overflows it, but cannot be localized in it. Every point in it is accessible to his consciousness and will. And his manifest presence can be focused in any location as he sees fit. In the incarnation, he focused his reality in a special way in the body of Jesus Christ. So the reality of God's presence relates to the earth kind of the way that we relate to our body. You have a will. You have desire, you have determination, and you use your physical body to manifest that, to make that a reality. 
but your thoughts, as well-intentioned or as brilliant as they are, your thoughts alone don't bring something into existence. It takes the combination of your thoughts moving through your body into physical reality. There was a scientist, a Scottish scientist, James Clerk Maxwell, in the late 19th century, who helped usher in the era of modern physics. He's called one of the greatest scientists who's ever lived. He was a strong follower of Jesus. And his research, his uh, work is the source point, the starting point of quantum mechanics. His work right now is why we have cell phones, why we have internet, why we have communication that travels seemingly through the nothingness of empty space. The reality that he discovered is no space is empty. There are things at work all around us. We don't live in this void of emptiness. The presence and kingdom of God is all around us. So what if the space around you in your life right now isn't empty? What if when you pray, it's not just emptiness all around you. What if when you pray, you have the attentiveness and very real presence of the King of Kings with you? What if as you pray, he's sitting with you? What if as you pray, he's attending to you? What if as you pray, he's interacting with you, even if you can't feel it, taste it, smell it, sense it, or hear it? That's what scripture says is reality. And this is the reality that Jesus is calling us to live into in this prayer of all prayers. God, would the reality of your presence come? Would it flow through my life to bring renewal on the earth around me? Lastly, last word, what is God's will? This is a quicker one. In biblical language, the will is usually referred to as the heart. The will or the heart is the executive center of the self. So when Jesus says, God, your will be done, what he's saying is, God, would your heart be expressed and fulfilled? Would your desire for those lives around me be fulfilled? Would the very thing that drives your passion and your desire for the goodness of your life to be seen and felt on the earth, would that come into being? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. So God is calling us to be living cathedrals of the presence and power of the kingdom. To access the things of heaven in our lives so that we can be a conduit for the things of heaven on the earth. There are two counter-formational realities we need to guard against as we think of being this living cathedral. I'm not going to spend a long time on these, but these are counterfeit realities. And the first counterfeit to being a cathedral is being a castle. And this is a life that's directed at self, self, self. This is self-identity. This is growth and prosperity of self. This is self-focused living. This is building my kingdom. It's building my reality. It's building what I want to see happen. It's, it's used to glorify me among the people. It's used to establish my, my preeminence among my peers. And there's a great temptation in our culture to enter into Project Castle 
where we turn God into a bellboy for our increased presence and our pride and what we want to see happen in our life. And then there's another great danger that we turn ourselves into Project Fortress, where we look at the world around us and all of the brokenness going on, and we go, we've got to retreat into our places of safety. We have to build these walls of doctrinal conviction, and we have to get super specific about it, and we've got to know who's in and who's out, and we've got to kind of make sure that we're safe, and we live this isolated, huddled together life. I want to say this with great love and humility. I don't think God's call for us is to build little communes out in the woods where our friends can hang out and we can just live off the land. I think God's call is to be in the middle of the dark places of our world, to bring his kingdom to bear. We're not called to huddle into our fortresses, put up the walls and just hold it out until his kingdom comes. We're, not, we're actually called to be a cathedral that is exploding with the light of God's presence and power in our world. I wonder if God's call in us, I'm even saying for me, is to move into the places of our city instead of out. Into places of darkness and community with the broken, with the marginalized, to be a, a cathedral of God's presence in that place and not a fortress of isolation and protectionism for my convictions out in the middle of nowhere. So we're not called to cultivate a vision of self-interest or self-promotion or self-preservation. And we're not called to retreat behind the walls of our own fortresses. We're called to be a light. Okay, let me just try to quickly recap what I was meaning to say, hopefully in a more succinct, clarified and understandable way. The heart behind all of this, the reason we're even linking this to Matthew 6 verse 9 uh, is that we are called to be people who live the prayer of Jesus the way that Jesus himself lived it. That's our heart. We are called to be people who don't just ask God to bring the kingdom in some sort of mysterious way, we are called to be the answer to and to live the reality of that prayer. So the will of God is his heart or his desire. And his will is the beauty and power of his kingdom coming through his people in a tangible way on the earth as it did through Jesus. That's ultimately, we each have unique uh, callings, unique ways to live out the purpose of God, but ultimately the purpose of God is the renewal of all things. It's the availability of his kingdom now and his desire to bring the tangible reality of his kingdom 
to bear on the earth around us, in our families, through us. So recap real quick. His kingdom is the effective range of his will. It's where what God wants done is done. It's a location, yes. Paul talks about a third heaven reality. John enters into a throne room reality. I believe right now we there's an intermediate heaven where those who have died are with Jesus. I, I believe that is a, 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 a locative reality. But in addition to that, his kingdom is present where his, where his heart is fulfilled. The place where God's heart is done is where his kingdom is. His kingdom is also tangible. It's not intellectual. It's not um, just a metaphysical reality. Although it is those things, his kingdom is tangible. And we see in the gospels what his kingdom looks like. His kingdom looks like the character of Jesus. His kingdom looks like the way Jesus lived. His kingdom looks like healing and restoration and deliverance. His kingdom looks like goodness and life and peace and mercy. It looks like the fruit of the spirit. His kingdom looks like the Sermon on the Mount. That's what his kingdom looks like. And his kingdom is beautiful. It's powerful. Our world needs to see the reality, the tangible reality of the kingdom of God being lived through the church. Again, his kingdom is powerful and his kingdom is available. That's, you know, an an, an underlying assumption that is of absolute importance. The good news of Jesus was the availability of the fullness of the kingdom of God for us today. Lastly, uh, I have called us, we, we use this imagery of being a living cathedral for the presence and power of God. And that is what our calling is, but there's a counterfeit that we need to resist. And one of the counterfeits is becoming castles of self-importance, living for a self-directed way of life, living for the accumulation of stuff and things, property and possessions, influence, living for uh, according to the values of the world, what the world esteems as prestigious, as powerful, as all of those things. We need to resist the castle mentality and we need to resist the fortress uh, mentality where, um, you know, there's this big bad world around us, this dangerous place for Christians, this dangerous place uh, ideologically, socially, this dangerous place that's gonna ruin us or ruin our kids if we interact with it. We need to resist the idea of building fortresses where we cocoon ourselves inside, you know, just insulated communities uh, of people that only believe what we believe and only think what we think and only value what we value and only see the world as the way we see it. I don't believe that is actually the calling or the heart of God. I believe we're called to be living cathedrals, standing in dark places so that the kingdom of God can explode out of us 
in all of its goodness and its life and its power. Next week, we are moving on to part two, where we continue to drill this down. So if the vision of God for our church and for our lives is summed up in that statement on earth as it is in heaven through you, next week we begin to talk about how that happens. And that's by living the way of Jesus for the renewal of our city. 